Good morning. Praise the one who breaks the darkness with a liberating light. Praise the one who frees the prisoners, turning blindness into sight. Amen. The story goes there was a man at the golf uh, range hitting golf balls at his club when the club pro came out of the shop with another man, a student, and they set up right next to this observer. The golf pro saw the, the student take a couple swings of the golf club and, and immediately began to give him some tips, some pointers, some advice about how to make his swing better. But every time that that pro made a suggestion, the student interrupted him. And he gave an excuse for why he did what he did, and, and, and he told him, this is the way that, that I have always done it, and this is the way that I think I should do it. And after a number of interruptions, the golf pro finally just started to nod every time the man talked and smile and, and let him keep on hitting that ball. After accomplishing just about zero teaching, and a half an hour later, the student was pretty pleased with his golf pro and he told him he thanked him for his expertise and he paid him his fee and then the man was on his way with a big smile feeling pretty content about the session the observer went over to the golf pro and he asked him he said well why didn't you do anything why didn't you correct him why didn't you say it and the golf pro said son smiling as he put the fee into his pocket I learned a long time ago that it's a waste of time to sell answers to a man who wants to buy echoes. Israel, the nation, was in that spot of that student. A student who doesn't really like to hear the critique, but a student who really wants to hear back the things that they want to hear back and feel good. In other words, Israel was in a place in this text before us where God was trying to give them instruction. He was trying to give them answers. He was trying to give them solutions. But Israel kept turning him away and kept running to anything and anybody that would parrot back to them what they wanted to hear or anything or anybody that would say anything that God didn't say. They ran to those wells and they drank from them pretty deeply. And this is what happens. Just as that golfer probably went back to that golf course and his slice was as bad as ever and probably complained about his lesson later on when nothing's going right in life, Israel spiraled down when they walked away from God without taking instruction, they spiraled down into a deep, deep darkness, it says. A darkness that was so deep that there was little to no hope. This morning, we're going to look into two things in this text that God wants us to know. The first thing that he wants us to know is that by nature, we drink from empty wells ourselves. And that when we drink from those wells and we believe it, 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 it produces an emptiness in our life if that well does not have God at its bottom. And number two, when we find ourselves in that darkness and we find ourselves on the golf course and the slice is as bad as ever and we're crying out, God, why is this happening in my life? God says this. He says, I'm not afraid of the dark and I can enter into even the deepest darkness that you have gone through and that you are going through today. Um, Israel was going away from God and his instruction and they were turning, it says in verse 19, to spiritists and mediums and people that were using the dark arts. It says this, it says, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. 
When they are famished, they will become enraged and look up, upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. By nature, we drink from wells that give us false hope. And you can see it right there in verse 19 and verse 20. Um, God's people had been uh, reprimanded by God. At this time in history, they had been falling away from God in their sin. They'd been committing idolatry and gone far, far away from him in their thoughts and their minds and their hearts. God calls them back again and again through his prophets, um, prophets like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, and and others. And he says, repent and come back to me. And, And all this gloom that you're going through and you're about to go through, all this gloom that you have and emptiness, I'll restore it. I'll be your light. I'll give you forgiveness. Just repent and believe in me. Repent and believe in me. But do you know what they did when they heard repent and believe in me? They, they took God's word, the prophets of that time, and they killed the prophets. And they mocked them and they ridiculed them and they drove them away. They, they were like uh, putting earmuffs on so that, that God could not communicate with them because it is so offensive for us to hear from God that we are sinners and that we need forgiveness, that we're broken and that we are wrong. Uh, that's probably one of the most offensive things. And so what do they do? They go to mediums and they go to spiritists. When you're a child, do you remember doing this? Or maybe your children play this game to you parents? That uh, if, if, if I don't get what I want from mom, what do I do? Who do I ask? I run to dad, right? You've had that happen. That's the only way I could spend the night at my friend Chase's house on Friday nights is I always went to dad first. And he said to mom, dad already said I could do it. <laughs> we like to hear the answers that we like to hear. And when Israel didn't like the answer they're getting from God, they're saying, I'm going to run to anybody and anything else where I can get the answer that I like to hear. And so they run to these mediums and spiritists. In the Hebrew, these are uh, necromancers or people who claim to have a connection with the dead. You hear about them even today with seances and palm readers, for example. People who use or claim to use the dark arts to get answers about the future. They would come to them and they would pay a price Um, to these people, these professional uh, mediums and spiritists. And these medium and spiritists would create a strange, maybe a dark kind of scene in a room. And they would make strange sounds. You saw it right there in the King James Version. It says that they're wizards that peep and make little noises like that. They would whisper and they would mutter. These professional, almost ventriloquists, would use their vocal cords to imitate the sound of a different voice, so you think somebody else is in the room. They were really good, and they they made a lot of money off of it too. But they would give these cryptic and mystic uh, answers to the present and to the future that kept the people coming back again and again and again. So cryptic that it wasn't so exact, but it it was so mysterious that they wanted to learn more and more and more. And so Israel keeps going to these spiritists and these mediums, and they keep paying to hear about their future from people that are probably ripping them off about everything, but they would rather go there than answer to God. It says this, he says, why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult, God's saying, consult my word, my prophets, my teachings, my warnings. Think through this with me for just a moment about going to a medium or going to a spiritist. First of all, they're in the business of taking your money, okay? They were business people. Business is good when people come through your doors, Business is bad when you don't have repeat customers. And so can you imagine getting straight advice from somebody that just wants to get you to come through their door again and again and again? How foolish would that be? Number two, we know that spiritists and mediums claim to contact the dead, but here's what we also know from Scripture. 
We also know from Scripture that in Ecclesiastes 12, it says that when the body, the person dies, the body goes into the ground, and the spirit, our spirit, at the point of death, returns to God who judges it. He's the one who created it. And so, really, from what Scripture, what we know in Scripture, right there, there aren't spirits. Your grandma, your grandpa, your, your deceased loved ones that roam the earth any longer. And when they would consult the dead, so to speak, they were actually consulting Satan and his demons. It says, Jesus says this about Satan. He says he's a great imitator. And no doubt Satan can make apparitions to scare us or to shake our faith up. But he also says this about Satan. Satan doesn't have a straight answer for you. And if you're going down that well in the dark arts, that keep this in mind. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If you've been caught up in the dark arts, or you entertain the palm reader, or you entertain anything that isn't God, that claims that they know the future, and maybe they even do consult Satan, I want you to know, first of all, save your money, and second of all, save your soul, because it is a dark, dark spiral. It's a dark spiral, but if you've gone down that or you're going down that right now, you have a God, and in just a moment you're going to hear about it, who can enter even the deepest darkness and rescue, it from it, and rescue you from it. But that's not the only well that we drink from, the dark arts. The wells that we drink from, they can be pretty much anything in this world that we put our faith in that's void of God completely. Um, you can drink from the well of education, and I love education, I love books, I love furthering myself. You can drink from the well of the universities and academia. You can drink from that well so deeply into humanism. But if you do it without God, it's an empty well. Because academia, even academia is changing from time to time and, and methods and assumptions that we had 100 years ago about what is true and how to apply it has totally changed today. I don't see doctors prescribing horse manure today, for instance, like they used to for an upset stomach. And I'm not as so arrogant to believe that today we have all the answers because was it like three years ago that we believed that coffee was bad for you, but now today coffee is like good for you and maybe next year eggs are going to be bad for you? It's changing all the time. Our information that's coming in and the opinions about it, very often we can't even understand and agree what truth really is. So without God putting your faith in something like learning without God is an empty well, and it leads to emptiness. Another example today is really popular is uh, public opinion. In other words, in America, especially the American Idol Society, whatever it is that gets the most votes, what's right and what's wrong, political correctness, whatever it is that we call that, if we say, well, everybody else believes it in the United States, and so I should believe it too, that's an empty well, because guess what? Poles are wrong. And in a couple of verses before this, in verse 12, Isaiah says this. He says, Do not call conspiracy everything that all these other people are calling conspiracy. Popular opinion. Without God and God's word, what he says here, consult God and God's instruction, is an empty well. If the preacher in church has all the church trappings of a church and uh, he has a $1,000 suit and he has a $12 million contract with Colgate and tells you that you can have the same, you can have health, wealth, and happiness, if only you believe more, that's another voice with an empty well that has no foundation in the Word of God. And should, should I go this far? 
but it's true. Even the, the person that we believe that could save our country or the person that we believe that has the right ideas about our future, if we pour ourselves into our ideas or him or her, whoever's at the top, so much and we don't have faith in God, it's going to lead to emptiness. Socialism without God, it leads to emptiness. Capitalism without God leads to emptiness. Why? Because the moment that anything earthly like that gets ripped out from underneath us, the carpet gets pulled out, if, if we don't have God, we're going to be completely crushed. And if our gal or I got, our guy wins, let's, let's say that we're on the winning side of it, what happens then? Then we elevate that person to a point where we're actually we trust in that person more than we do God, and that rips our faith away. So do you see that the emptiness that we experience when things are taken away from us or things are given to us, without God, they all mean nothing. False hope leads to emptiness, but emptiness leads to this. Those empty wells that we drink from, they lead to something else, and they lead to distress and to gloom. It says this, uh, it says that distressed and hungry, verse 21, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. In other words, Israel was going through a dark time, and it was caused by their, their selves. They were the ones running to the spirits and the mediums. And then when they found out that the spirits and the mediums really weren't giving them the answers, they are just getting ripped off by them, they realized that they were empty, and so they went running around, and what did they do? Instead of blaming themselves for their problems, who do they blame? They shake their fist, and they blame God. They shake their fist, and they blame God. One of the examples of this is the American dream. I love the American dream. What's the American dream? It's you work hard, you put in your time, you can do whatever you want, you can have a house and a white, fic- white picket fence, you can, have, uh, you can create your own destiny. It's a beautiful idea, isn't it? But it leads actually to the exact opposite result. It leads to a lot of distress in our life. In fact, in his book, Overload, by Richard Swenson, he says this, he says, talking about this American dream, we are overloaded and worked to death to the point that something that should be so beautiful, right? An idea that we poured all, that we put all of our eggs into has become something that actually curses us. Number one, he says this. He says we're overloaded with commitments. In other words, we've committed to everything. We don't say no to anything, and so we only meet ourselves coming and going. We're overcommitted. Number two, he says this. We are over possessed. That means that we have so many possessions. We are so rich that even the poor in, our, in the United States are rich compared to the other world standards. We have, it's not just a matter of how many refrigerators we have, but it's a matter of, of how many cars we have, how many houses we have. We're rich beyond any means. And guess what it takes to put fuel in the cars and to put fuel in the boats? It takes more money. And he says we're overworked. We work overtime because we have to keep up all of these possessions. We're over-committed, we're over-possessed, we're overworked, and then he says this, we're also over-informed. He says to keep up in his business, he needs to read 220 articles a month just to keep up. And I know that you are professionals out there, that you are professionals that have to keep up with your work and your people at your work who have to produce information as well. And so we're overloaded in all these areas that this good thing, the American idea, without God actually causes us more busyness 
actually causes us more distress and we're unhappier as ever as Americans, even though we're pursuing this great, great thing. Emptiness leads to distress. And then who gets blamed when we're unhappy? We blame God, don't we? Where are you, God? Shaking our fist. Looking down to the earth, we look up and we say, God, where are you? Don't you care about me? Don't you think, don't you, can't you do something about my situation? It leads to a dark, dark place. And for Israel, it led to the darkest place. Without God, turning away from God, they were put into captivity. And they would lose their home. They would lose everything because they thought that going away from God would help them. But it's in that darkness, emptiness causes us to curse God and throws us into utter darkness. It's in that darkness that God comes to us. This is where the nevertheless comes in. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea beyond Jerusalem, beyond the Jordan, sorry. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For God's light to shine, he may darken your world. And that's exactly what he did for Israel. Physical blindness is different than spiritual blindness in this way. If you know a physical, physically blind person, you know that they know that they're blind, right? They know that they need help. But a spiritually blind person, somebody who is truly lost spiritually doesn't know that they're blind, and therefore they never seek or recognize the light. They think that they already have the light. Jesus entered into the darkest darkness, and so when people encountered him, think, through, think about this with me, people encountered him, they thought one of two things. When they saw Jesus and they saw his miracles and they heard his teaching, they either dropped to their knees and they worshipped him as God. Why? Because they knew that they were blind and they needed help. And they knew that he was the light. The others that encountered him, they mocked him. They feared him. He was a threat to them. Why? Because they were truly spiritually blind. They saw no need for forgiveness. They saw no need for a Savior to come to them and say, hey, I'm the light of the world. They say, what? I already have the light. I'm already there. I'm already made it. I'm already arrived. I don't need you to come into my life and tell me that I've arrived. That's a truly spiritually blind person. And it's interesting, when Jesus heals the man that was blind from birth in John chapter 9, he comes and he talks to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the ones who think that they can see, but they really can't see that Jesus is the Christ. And the Pharisees say to Jesus in verse 40 of chapter 9 of John, they say, what? Are we blind too? And Jesus said this, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. In other words, for you really to see me, Jesus is saying, for you really to understand who I am, I have to turn down the light in your life. I have to take away some things, Israel. I have to take away your home because you haven't woken up. When God humbles us in his word and he tells us there to repent of our sins and that we aren't as good naturally as we think that we are, he's dimming the light light on our life. Why? Because if it weren't for that darkness, we could never appreciate the Jesus who's standing in front of us that is our light and that can actually save us from ourselves. And so he has taken us away. He's taken us away from ourselves. He's dimmed the life on our life, the light in our life because he wants his light to shine all the more. 
That happens when you call to repentance. That happens when he, 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 helped, he, he makes you carry a cross through your life so that his grace and his life can shine out all the more. And that happened when he entered the world. And Isaiah, written hundreds of years before Jesus, he says this, that this Savior figure will come into the gloom. He'll enter in our dar- into our darkness, and then he'll enter into these lands, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That was a region in Israel that was war-torn. Uh, armies would come through and march through that area, and there would be wars all the time. You didn't want to live there if you could help it. But he says, that's the place. Nebulun and Zaphtali, that's the place that I want to enter in, into the darkest place, into the war-torn place. He wants to go, it says, and we heard this in the reading earlier, he went to Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the nations. In other words, he didn't choose Jerusalem. He didn't choose the place where all the people that thought that they had the light, those Pharisees and, and, and the universities and all of the places that were enlightened, so to speak. He went to Galilee, the backwoods, he went and he didn't call the brightest and the best to be his disciples. Who did he call? He called fishermen. And he made his ministry headquarters, not in Jerusalem, but he made it in a small fishing town on the Sea of Galilee. Why? Because he wants to shine in the deepest darkness so that when he came to those people, those people were the people that knew they were blind and that they would appreciate him for who he is because they saw him immediately and they said, this is the Savior, this is the God, this is the one that heals my sickness, that takes away my sins. I'm the one that needs to be cleaned by him. And he entered into their deepest darkness and your deepest darkness when he took all of your sins to the cross and he suffered hell for you. That's the darkness that you and I lived in, but that's the darkness that God penetrated that changes our life, and this is how he's changed our life. We live underneath the sun now, God's sun, and we enjoy his presence and his warmth. Even if we've gone down those other wells before, he's brought us back and he says, I forgive you. Even if whatever it is that we've done in the past, no matter how bad it is, no matter how bad it is today and and, and the situation that we've created for ourselves because we're sinful, he says, I forgive you, and I give you my son for free. My family and I, as a child, did a lot of camping, tent camping. Uh, We had a tent that was supposedly for six, and we were six people, but it felt like a tent for four. It was tiny. We went all over the place, uh, Big Bend, Arizona, New Mexico. We went all up and down the Midwest, traveling in that minivan. And then one year, we went to Colorado. And I got to tell you that our family is famous. We're the self-acclaimed drought busters, because wherever we go, we, if we bring a tent along, it's guaranteed to rain. And that was true that year in Colorado as well. We entered the state, and I think it was one of the first stops we made. He, the, the sheriff or whoever it was that we were talking to, he said, yeah, we have a big drought right now. And we think, oh, well, that's good. We finally can go on a camping trip without rain. And then all of, all of a sudden, overnight, the, the, uh, the forecast changed. And I remember driving with my face to the window as a, maybe a 12-year-old or something like that. And the rain was pouring down on our vacation, and we literally drove through a town called Purgatory. It's real, and it felt that way, that whole vacation. Well, one night we stopped, and there was a break in the rain, and so we set up camp in the mountains, and I can still remember getting the camp ready, and we all got into the tent and got in our sleeping bags and our foam mats, and then we heard it, the crash of thunder, and the rain came, and the rain poured, 
And it didn't just pour, but it drenched everything. And I remember the water coming up in the tent slowly, and, and I was worrying that our, our, our little mats would start floating away. Dad finally said, enough of this. He took down the whole camp with us kids, uh, and we threw everything into the minivan, which was very mini. And we all got in there with all the wet gear. We were soaked. It was extremely tight. And we started driving from motel to motel. Dad went knocking on every door. It was like no room at the inn, everywhere. Everybody had already gotten their hotel rooms. It had to be around midnight when Dad stopped at the motel, got shut down again. I don't even think that they were open anymore. And he came back to the car, and I still remember him going, we're sleeping here tonight, right there in the motel parking lot. It was wet. It was smelly. My brother's feet were in my face. There was a pole in my back. And I don't think any of us got a wink of sleep that night. I know I didn't. It was the longest night of my life because we couldn't get out of the van. Until I saw the sun coming up. And it was at that moment when that sun started peeking up over the mountains, and maybe a half an hour after that, that we all got out of the van. We all basked in its light. We were all warmed again by the sun. We took out all the equipment, put it all over that motel parking lot driveway, and the sun dried it all out. Never before had I appreciated the sun, but what did I have to go through first? Darkness. When Jesus humbles you, and he brings you to confession, and he brings you to see you for who you really are, that stinks. It does. But he does that not to humiliate you. He does that because he wants that scene in your life. He wants you to bask in the sun and say, this is life. Not those empty wells. This is life. This is why I come to church. Not because Pastor Dan says so, but I come to church because this is me basking in the light in this dark world. When I pray, I have a new reason to pray. Not to pray because I need a whole bunch of stuff, but I pray because I'm asking God to be a bigger son in my life. That whatever I'm going through, he can take care of the circumstances, but more than that, I pray that his son is bigger and bigger so that I can make it through. When I sign up for connect groups, I sign up not because Pastor Dan says so, but because I want that son throughout the week. And I want to share that son and bask in that son because my life is so dark without it. And I want to get it right there with other Christians. When I volunteer, when I give, when I share the good news of the son with other people, I do it not because I have to, but because I'm a son and I'm a daughter of the one that gives me warmth. And that's what we do. That's just what we do when we're basking in the sun. We do that. You can't sell answers to somebody that wants to buy echoes, but God does neither. He doesn't sell us anything, but he gives us that son, the son of God, his life on the cross for free. There's no bargaining. He says, here it is. Take it as a gift. And he doesn't echo back to us either. He comes to us in his word, as simple as it is, that Bible, and he says to us, this is the truth. You can go and you can adventure to all the other wells that you want to, but that word of God 
Consult me, talk to me, know me, and then you will know the true light. Then you'll know my son. Amen.